You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV Focus, the Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. Uh, I trust our uh, audience is enjoying spring and the low electricity prices that come with it. Um, and I guess for me, that's one of the main things to have come out of the last couple of weeks' news is that with spring, demand falls um, and solar production goes up. And because it's got a low variable cost and is prepared to bid in low, we've been overall electricity prices in the NEM. It's like last year didn't happen. The price in Victoria in the last 30 days has averaged about $22. Prices in the middle of every day in just about every state are negative. Uh, the gas price, the spot gas price, is down to four or five dollars a gigajoule. Um, you know, it's la dolce vita, Giles. <laughs> well, who knew? Who knew? Yeah, look, um, spring is definitely the season of records, and we've seen lots of records happening over the last couple of weeks. Um, rooftop solar getting up to 101% of demand in South Australia, um, which is quite a milestone when you think about it. Um, I mean, it's probably no way to run a grid 100% rooftops all the whole time. Well, you can't because nighttime comes. But um, it certainly is a um, it's a really interesting dynamic, um, which is going to be a central role in uh, Australia's future energy. And we've seen the consequences of that pushing um, demand down to um, new lows, if you suggest it. Um, Co-fired output down to new lows in Victoria, below two gigawatts for the first time. Uh, to New South Wales, record lows there in uh, Queensland as well. Uh, and as you say, sort of negative prices. We um, we publish Rystart Energy's um, best performing wind and solar farms um, every month because people do seem to be quite interested in it. And I was fascinated to see last time the... Uh, the solar farms in New South Wales ranked 16 of the top 20 best performing entirely because there was, New South Wales was the, was the only state where in the month of September all the solar farms averaged at least some sort of positive price. It was at negative on average in every other state for utility scale solar, largely the consequence of um, rooftop solar. And in South, not, not only no, that, I've got one more statistic for you before that, um, David. In South Australia, 240 hours in a month had negative prices. That's eight hours a day. It's extraordinary. It is, and it's going to be characteristic of this time of year. And before we all throw our hands up in the air and, and say something has to be done about it, uh, I want to put it out there that these low prices are self-correcting, as they nearly always are, and batteries and the like will come along and pumped hydro maybe uh, and, and pick up that slack and start running some of the nighttime power because there's a big incentive there. Just in regard to the negative prices and New South Wales positive ones, it's worth pointing out that the way the transmission constraints work at the moment, that uh, even though when the price in Victoria in the middle of the day is uh, negative and below the price in New South Wales, nevertheless, New South Wales solar exporters export to Victoria. 
uh, because the constraints mean they can't shift the power into the New South Wales uh, region. And what does that mean, really? It means that the transmission system isn't fit for purpose, uh, which is a topic we're going to come on to in a little while, uh, and, and we need to have a lot of constraint relief, uh, particularly, I think, myself in the New South Wales interconnectors. They're the most important ones to me in some ways, but then I live in New South Wales, I would say that. I also want to... Uh, uh, we've talked about Rystad. I also want to give a, a shout out to the data that SunWiz collects from the Clean Energy Regulator, uh, pointing out that between two and three gigawatts of rooftop solar have been installed every year in, in the last five years, and that will be the case again in 2023. So that's 13 gigawatts of uh, a solar roughly in those five years. Uh, which the peak output's probably something like about nine gigawatts, which is you know like forty five percent of demand uh, when it's when it's running like that, and it's probably about uh, seven or eight percent of total supply throughout the whole uh, uh, year, sixteen terawatt hours or something like that of two hundred national consumption. If we're all talking stats, Charles. Well, we are, we are, we are. No, no, it's it's, um, it's fascinating stuff, and um, there's actually been a big surge in heat pump purchases as well. I think that sort of comes out of the, either um, the SunWiz data or the Clean Energy Regulator data, or both of the above, or all of the above, and uh, we're think, thinking about other providers. Um, it's interesting too. Um, Battery storage is, um, I mean, you mentioned batteries as negative prices, sort of self-correcting because batteries will be built when they see sort of volatility and they like to have a, a bit of a spread, sort of buy low and sell high. We've seen a couple of new batteries get, um, or seeking um, transmission connections, or maybe even getting transmission connections, beg my pardon, in South Australia. Um, the Templars battery, uh, which is the first by Zen Energy, um, Ross Garneau's outfit, um, and we've seen some more batteries come online in New South Wales, the Riverina battery and the Darlington Point battery. And we've had another fire up at Bordercombe in the, um, the Bordercombe battery owned by GenX. Now, that was quite interesting. Of course, this created lots of headlines and we don't really know the cause. Um, certainly very spectacular when these things happen, but it was quite interesting to see the um, the whole battery unit back online, at least for testing, within 48 hours. Um, no great delay expected in the commissioning process, although I've got to say that's probably yet to be seen and probably subject to the root cause analysis of exactly what did happen. But... Um, yeah. Concerning, concerning uh, that it happens, um, reassuring that it didn't spread and it seems to be relatively easy contained, um, unlike sort of bigger things in fossil fuel generators, for instance. Yes, uh, you know, I prefer to talk of it as uh, buying, buying sheep and selling deer, uh, uh, Giles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what uh, if you're putting a battery in, you'd still want to do it in our experimental state, that's South Australia for you South Australians, uh, where the daily margin is still uh, easily high enough on the numbers that I look at to justify more batteries. You need about, uh, on the numbers I calculate, for a given capital cost, you need to be able to make a, on a four-hour battery about $200 uh, spread between what you buy and what you sell at. And you can do that in most states, certainly in South Australia and in New South Wales and Queensland, but you can most reliably do it in South Australia still mm. uh, at the moment. And uh, we also heard from uh, Gabriel uh, Kuiper. Is, I have Cooper, a, I, I think. I'm not sure. Cooper, yes, excuse it looks, me. It looks like Kuiper, uh, but it's, it's, I think it's Cooper. There you go, about standards. 
Uh, and it just brings in mind again that, you know, the integration of all of this residential solar uh, and the fact that we could do more to put household batteries into the system, which I still think is the most under uh, looked at, underused sector, uh, the one area where we could do more faster than anywhere else without having to go through all the social license stuff if the policy incentives could just be uh, tweaked up a bit. But that's a topic for another day. Giles, perhaps it's No, time I've got to... a couple more things. It's, it's nearly time, David. It's nearly time. Uh, no, just, want to, just on that um, distributed energy business, um, if you didn't see it, I thought Tristan Eders from Green Energy Markets had a really interesting and provocative piece um, about sort of what's called neighbourhood batteries or community batteries. Uh, I didn't agree with all of it, but I did read it carefully. <laughs> there you go. Um, and you don't have to agree with all of it, but I just still think it's, it's still pretty interesting. And I think there is a bit of uh, quite a bit of debate about about you know, who gets to operate them and to what extent they're efficient and things like that. So I thought that was interesting. And just speaking about battery storage, I'm really not too sure if we've mentioned quite enough of it, but in WA they're doing some extraordinary things and they kind of sneaked out last in the last couple of weeks um, that some contracts have gone to CATL, which is C-A-T-L, the Chinese battery makers. And they're actually building a 500 megawatt, 2000 megawatt hour, four hour battery in Collie uh, next to the old coal-fired power station. It's not the same battery that NeoN is building, which could also be one gigawatt and four gigawatt hours. There's the Konana second stage, which is 200 megawatts and four hours um, of storage. There's the Alinta battery. And to top it all off, they started new rules last week, or at, at the start of this week. Um, if you think about the Australian uh, national energy market and the, uh, the ructions or the, sort of <laughs> the slow progress to um, introduce new rules, and in WA they're not encumbered so much with regulators and uh, rule makers and, and what have you. They just go out and do it. So they did it, and so they've introduced um, what they're describing as a fit for purpose. They're really just trying to align everything for the exit of their last coal-fired power stations within the next five or six years, encouraging battery storage, dealing with rooftop solar. Um, they've just done a 120 megawatt demand response contract, which has been picked up by NLX. They've got the new batteries. They've switched to five-minute trading. They've introduced new rules of managing the grid and dispatch. Uh, prioritising new uh, wind and solar farm developments um, because they've been dissuaded from doing so because of the access regime and the way that was structured. So this should actually encourage people to, to join the grid, uh, possibly with the risk of curtailment, but at least they know they can actually connect now. Um, so a lot of things happening over there, and it's really quite interesting because it is such a standalone grid, a big grid standalone, and um, I think that's a really interesting place to, to watch anyway. And that's a great segue, uh, Giles, into our interview this week, uh, which is with Marinus Link. Uh, I'm interested in all the transmission bits and pieces that are, that are going around. And we were fortunate enough to uh, have as guests uh, Carolyn Wykamp, the CEO of Marinus Link, and Prajit uh, Paramesawa, the, uh, I hope I've got that right, the Chief Commercial Officer, uh, and discussing and making, in, well, we'll all have our own opinion about the pluses and minuses, but I, th I thought they, um, they made the case reasonably well. Uh, I'll ask afterwards what you thought, Giles. But I do want to tell our listeners that we had some audio issues uh, with this interview for which I want to apologise. Uh, I know how important the audio quality is to people on the podcast. And I want to apologise in advance that in next week's episode, we're going to have a, a few audio issues as well. And my commitment is that we're going to get rid of those audio issues, so I hope our listeners can bear with us. But without further ado, uh, here's uh, Carolyn and Prajit. 
Carolyn Wykamp uh, and Prajit uh, Parameshwa from Marinus Link, thanks very much for joining Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, for those of our listeners who aren't aware, uh, Marinus Link is a second proposed uh, connection electricity cable between uh, Tasmania and Victoria. Uh, ultimate design capacity would be uh, 1,500 megawatts. Stage one is 750 megawatts, currently estimated to cost uh, a little over $3 billion and potentially starting construction in 2025. It's about 350 kilometres long and it's DC. Carolyn, could you tell us a little bit about uh, why uh, Marinus Link is a good idea, where the project's up to and the next steps? Thank you very much. Uh, it's, it is one of my favourite topics. I think one of the best things about Marinus is what it actually unlocks. So uh, Tasmania has a very interesting energy uh, landscape at the moment. So we're, Tassie's energy neutral, as in the demand equals about the, the generation that's uh, uh, in the state. What we do have, though, is very deep storage. So we've got a massive amount of storages in lakes and dams here, and we have excess capacity most days. So with Marinus Link 1, that enables all of that deep storage and capacity to be fully utilised. It also unlocks renewable generation in the NEM, and it doesn't, it's in Tasmania and uh, Victoria especially. And then that enables also that transferring of energy and the cheapest energy around the NEM. So when it's when it's quite sunny, and you'll see that uh, at, at times now with Basslink, uh, we have when it's really sunny in Victoria and there's lots of solar generation, um, instead of curtailing that solar generation, it will be sent down to Tassie. We don't use our water, so we keep that storage for another time. And then when it's most needed, we can send the hydropower back to, to the NEM. So I think that's like that's in a nutshell what I think it, it unlocks. And it's just, there's quite a, a massive, I can go, talk for ages about the Tasmanian um, innovation and the, the generation here, but I, I won't. Uh, what we're up to is we are in procurement stages for HVDC cable converters, um, civils and all of the kit and gear. I'm not an engineer, so I always uh, don't go too much into those details. And we still have the financial investment decision at December 24 um, and then construction uh, shortly after that. So does that sort of give you a, a very good summary of, of what it means and, um, and where we're up to? Yeah, yeah, it 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 does indeed, and I kind of want to do uh, this uh, uh, a little bit back to front, because I guess like just about every other electricity uh, project and uh, in Australia and I guess globally, the costs, uh, the estimated cost of uh, Marinus has gone up a lot. Originally, the whole fifteen hundred meg. Well, I don't know about originally, but back in two thousand nineteen, two thousand twenty, the whole project was estimated to cost uh, between three and four billion dollars, and now just stage one is at three billion dollars. Uh, I, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about what costs have increasing. Uh, have they stopped increasing? Do you think? Uh, and, and 
you know, just explain a little bit about the cost inflation and I'm, it's as it relates to, to Marinus Link, but also so I can understand a little bit more about it in, in the broader context, Stephen. Yeah, I'll, I'll start and then I'll hand over to, to Praj to say a few things. Um, that was also in $21. So there's been inflation since then. So if you're comparing, you know, a little over $3 billion to a little over $3 billion, it's not dollars to dollars. Um, also, I think if we just look at uh, these projects as costs, I think we're looking at one side of the equation. These are investments, and I like to talk about back in the 50s and 60s, we electrified Australia, and that was joining coal power stations predominantly to towns and cities. We need to re-electrify Australia. So the coal's shutting down, we know that, whether you believe in climate change or not. Um, that's where it's heading. The cheapest forms of power, solar, wind and hydro in that order. So we need to actually re-electrify Australia. So it's more about the investment and the opportunity that and, and the need for this. And, I, and, and Praj can talk about the cost because he's, he's leading uh, the, the procurement and the negotiations and the commercial side of buying all of the, the converters, cables uh, and equipment for Marinus Link. Yeah, Praj, uh, over to you then. I, I do want to come back uh, to the to the need and all those bits and pieces and the environmental approvals and the unlocking the wind and, and, and the alternative of, say, building more batteries in Victoria and the benefits as they spread around the whole NEM and the financing, a lot of other stuff. But I would just like to understand what's going on in procurement for, uh, you know, big projects at the moment. Uh Thank you, David. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure being here. Um, I think um, just, just adding on to what um, Caroline discussed, um, all, all generation and transmission costs have gone up, not just Marinus. Um, and uh, the latest uh, AEMO reports um, that, that have been published um, clearly, clearly show significant increase um, for, for all generation and transmission and, and there's a global race, um, as, as we all know, to get to net zero. Um, so all that means uh, demand's high. Um, th there are supply chain pressures, uh, which means costs, costs are high due to, due to these, these key factors. Um, uh, I, I can't really discuss the cost components of Marinus Link as, as my team um, are currently in could, could you just talk a little bit uh, about the availability of both terminal stations and uh, I guess skilled labour to actually uh, I, I was visiting another power station and there was some discussion that electrical engineers are actually pretty hard to get at the moment but also the, just the availability of terminal station equipment and indeed the availability of cable I've noticed that uh, uh, Marinus Link has already reserved cable manufacturing capacity uh, for Marinus Link. Yes, that's that's right, David. Um, we 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 had um, pre-qualified um, four four suppliers uh, for cables, and um, we are, are working with three of them. And um, as you rightly point out, we've reserved manufacturing uh, slot um, uh, for for from from one cable supplier. So market is market is tough. There is there is um, quite a bit of demand, uh, but yes, we we have been able to um, secure one supplier, uh, and we are working through. Um, we are working to progress with that supplier an EPC contract uh, and also 
uh, we are working through the other packages of procurement. And uh, just finally, before I turn back to Carolyn, uh, in regards to the EPC contract, obviously, I suppose it has to be uh, signed off before the uh, notice to proceed or where, whatever it is that is still aiming for December this year. Uh, the, the the intent will be to um, sign off the EPCs um, definitely uh, before feed, which is December next year. Um, yeah. But we we at this stage expect to sign EPC contracts um, by by early next year. Thanks. Sorry. Yes, I got my ears mixed <laughs> That's up. And. Uh, well, anyway, there's so much more to talk about contracting strategies and you know fixed costs and uh, and stuff. It's it's I, I suspect I can, uh, no doubt it would interest me and and some people, but maybe not more broadly. Uh, Carolyn, could I turn back to you uh, and generally ask um, about the economic case uh, uh, for Marinus Link? Uh, maybe I could start into this generally because I think the way it's going to be financed is the federal government is proposing to put up 49% of the finance and Tasmania 17.7%, let's call it 18%, and Victoria uh, um, uh, 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 the balance. Could you just talk a little bit uh, maybe uh, about why it's those kind of proportions? Is that expressed the way the benefits are going to fall across the national electricity market? I, yes, I can say that, uh, well, it's, it's, it's the, the project's going to be 20% um, equity and 80% debt. Now, the 80% debt will come via the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Then the equity percentage is that what you described, the 49%, 1733. There was, uh, look, Tasmania is a very small state with uh, around about 200,000 electricity customers. So it was really about what they can bear as a cost, the state. Uh, and that's where they've, you know, the Tasmanian government and Australian government have come up with uh, this new arrangement which reduces Tasmania's uh, equity position. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation are working extraordinarily hard to work uh, with concessional financing to make the cost to consumers as low as possible for this project. Uh, so th those are things that we've we've got the principles there and now we're working out how we fit that all in and how we negotiate all those uh, structures around the project financing. Yeah, so I, I, eventually I'll come to talk about the cost to consumers, uh, which of course is the ultimate uh, sort of point of things. Uh, but uh, in the, one of the other issues that emerge is that uh, there's a kind of, if I look at it from Victoria's point of view, and this will be my last question before handing over to Giles, if I look at it from Victoria's point of view, they've, they've got a big proposal to build uh, offshore wind and also uh, there are people in Victoria that uh, advocate you can do a lot of stuff with batteries. Uh, on the other hand, Tasmania has, according to my thinking, a fantastic onshore wind resource that, uh, you know, if the right social licence was there, w might be an awful lot cheaper uh, in itself as, com as compared to offshore wind. But then you've got to add the cost of the transmission in, but offshore wind needs some transmission as well. 
I just, I mean, you must have had discussions about all this at various times. I just would be interested in your your sort of thoughts about it all. I think it's well known that Tassie has extraordinarily good wind resources, um, and I think I think the commercial once you have Marinus committed, um, and and like we've got getting a lot of interest from wind farmers, not just actually in Tasmania, but even as far as New South Wales, waiting for Marinus to be built so that it opens up the NEM. Uh, I, I do think offshore wind is ambitious and I love the, that ambition because I think there's always a need for the, the governments to help support those, well, I'll call it new, but it's not new in the world, but it's new to Australia, uh, offshore wind. But I, I would agree that the resources in Tasmania are equally superior as offshore wind in Victoria, but that will be a commercial decision that I think the wind farms will make based on um, many different factors. I, I know that um, Victoria have plans for offshore wind and batteries that won't actually meet all of the uh, long duration storage that, that is required. So there are times when there are days of low wind and low solar so when they are there are days of that you do need access to that deep storage tasmania has that there's nothing to build with that deep storage it's already here so there's not a cost to that um, the 500 megawatts of excess capacity that on most days and i have to say on most days i work for hydro so i know that there are some winter days where you don't have it but that 500 megawatts around about of excess capacity that's sitting there so when there's problems and issues with you know upcoming summers if there's you know threats or worries about blackouts Tassie's sitting here with 500 megawatts of capacity in summer um, look, I'll probably just chime in here. Um, um, Caroline, um, yes, I guess Bestlink already exists. Why do we need extra? Because I, I, I doubt if um, is Bestlink being used to its full capacity? Yes, in those summer days, uh, there's still an extra 500 megawatts that can't get across. Bestlink's at its full capacity and there's another 500 megawatts. There's also access to that deep storage. So there's, we, we call it 14 terawatt hours, and that's what the size of the lakes and the dams are here in Tassie. So there's access to that that you can't get through BusLink. You can't send those extra megawatts across when most needed. So yes, you do need that, and you need it for Tasmania. Tasmania is net neutral. To have any growth here, we need the wind to be built. We need more energy to be in the state. Mm, so mm. that requires that, that connection. To, to allow that sort of capacity to be built and to be exported when needed. Um, we'll probably get to some of the social licence issues around that first, but I was interested in your sort of talk about sort of, you know, how we sort of electrify the nation, um, um, you know, originally sort of, you know, for the coal, coal generators and, and, and you sort of describe this as a similar project and, and this project is sort of part of this sort of the battery of the nation thing. So I'm just wondering whether it's actually become more of a nation building project than a commercial project, particularly considering that the cost of it has effectively doubled you're you're doing like just one 750 megawatt connector um initially be, be because of those increased costs um i think the government has said that there'll still be two-thirds of the value but is it really still a commercial enterprise or is it now or or was it always a nation building exercise as part of this this, this grand plan by emo for in, in its integrated system plan 
Well, I think from the commercial aspect, um, and I don't want to talk for hydro here, but if you have 500 megawatts of excess capacity, you can commercialise that. So it, it will make uh, significant amounts of money which will exceed the costs of, it, of, of Marinus. So I think that's so, quite confident. So, so, so just to clarify that, so despite the doubling of the price of the connection it's, and the fact it's that... It's not um, doubling it, the price either. Sorry, Giles. It's the cost, about 40, the cost. Um, so it's about 40 to 50% increase, uh, but that's still 500 megawatts. I mean, anyone who knows what capacity markets are worth can calculate that pretty quickly, what the value of that is. Uh, so I think that far exceeds uh, the cost. It's also, where is Victoria at the moment? They're curtailing solar. So how are they valuing curtailing solar and wind where they could actually send it to Tasmania, we build the storages up. So there's, there's that that's not being uh, included in this when we talk just about one the cost of one project. I think we need to look at it as a portfolio and look at how one thing affects other things. And, and it's not just Marinus. I think all these transmission projects, we can't just look at the cost here. You're really missing the equation. And what's the alternative? What are we going to do? That's the, the next big question. Well, that's a question I think David's probably going to have um, very soon because there's lots of people talking about in, in alternatives such as infilling domestic, you know, sort of distributed networks and battery storage. But if I could just throw a question back to Prajit because, you know, you talked about sort of the increased costs and how it's gone up and how it's gone up for sort of um, projects around the world. We've seen that with solar, we've seen that with wind, we've seen that, that with battery storage, but we're starting to see those costs come down again. So um, utility scale solar, solar modules, for instance, are now cheaper than they have ever been. Um, battery storage has come down with the, with the cost of lithium and other sort of um, inputs. Um, offshore wind, I think you could say it's plateaued and maybe starting to come down. Is there any sort of prospect that, um, and this may help you in your negotiations, you never know, that um, the prospect of cables and other equipment necessary for, for um, such projects will also come down? Look, I think um, at the end of the day, Giles, it all depends on your supply-demand equation, right? Um, with where we are at, uh, with Europe wanting energy security, with where we are at with um, the um, uh, entire global race to net zero, um, the, 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 the inflationary sort of pressures that we're seeing on price um, could, could be sustained for a few more years. Uh, yeah, uh, but I, uh, I think you're exactly right about the supply and demand side of things. So um, my view is that if there's the demand for cable, it's not like it's that hard to make. People will just install more capacity, won't they? And can you, is there more capacity being built that you're, that, to your knowledge? Yes, that is correct. There is more capacity being built, but it is not as simple as saying um, that um, you know, there, there is more demand, so more supply will be built. This, these are fairly complex um, sort of manufacturing uh, capability required. Uh, but yes, I do know that um, uh, the, the Europeans are building more capacity. Uh, but yes, you are right. At the end of the day, there will be an equilibrium. Um, and I can see um, throughout the market there are pressures. Um, and I can also see that there could be some projects that may not be able to afford these increasing costs. Uh, so if I had a crystal ball, I'd say that prices will go down today. And yes, it would be... Cost, cost will go down, go down a bit. I, I, I think... Um... Uh, I, th I think I read that General Electric is building uh, more capacity as, as, as well as uh, in, in the USA and uh, as well as in Europe. So I think that uh, globally, uh, some of these big firms uh, naturally see that uh, more 
cable is going to be a growth part of the business uh, as opposed to just uh, you know building wind and solar farms or, 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 or other stuff. That's, that's, that's correct. Um, the, the, there is, look, at the end of the day, if the world is serious about decarbonization, um, and we all know that there is no more, there's not a lot of space left in Europe to build onshore wind, um, everything's going offshore. So uh, there, is, there is going to be that sustained demand. Um, and um, there will be a point when there'll be excess supply. Uh, that is when I see the price, price will trend down. Um, all the market analysis that we've seen, um, and, and we get quite a bit of it um, via, via global experts, uh, we expect the, we expect the uh, supply demand to be tight for a few more years. And could we just talk a little bit about technology and reliability without wanting to get too technical, which would uh, confuse me instantly and, and perhaps some of the audience even faster. Uh, there are a couple of different ways of doing uh, DC uh, technology. Uh, you know, BastLink has had issues, which I think are very well known. Uh, that is, the, the cable's broken or bits and pieces have gone wrong. Do you exp is the reliability of modern DC better than it used to be? Uh, look, I think the uh, technology um, expected to be used uh, for Marinus Link um, is different uh, from, from Baslink. Baslink's technology was the best at its time when it was built. Um, technology uh, has now moved on to a voltage source converter, VSC technology. Um, so as, as time moves on, um, we, we are looking at new technology. In terms of reliability, look, these, these, these are measures that um, are, of course, included um, contractually. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm in a position to say whether the reliability um, you know, is, is um, going to increase or not. Uh, but what I, can, what I can say is we will be working towards ensuring um, that um, the reliability is at its highest levels for the customers of the NEM. Great. Carolyn, if I could come back to you, um, Giles talked about social license. Uh, it's a topic that uh, is very dear to all, close to our hearts and minds. But it seems to me that this is an underground uh, uh, cable or underwater cable. It goes underground in Victoria where it connects up to the existing transmission network. As far as the cable itself goes, uh, are there many sort of uh, environmental issues? We've got, uh, we're one of those lucky projects that uh, crosses three jurisdictions. So we have a extensive environmental uh, project work to get the approvals. So we, uh, the Bass Strait is Commonwealth. Uh, we have some Tasmania and we've got Victoria. Uh, we, we don't foreshadow any serious uh, concerns with Marinus Link and uh, environmental concerns with with that with the project social license is uh, something that is if I'm you know very well talked about about all projects um, I can probably criticize Australia as a group we haven't really sold the message very well that we need to change we need to re-electrify whether we do it via transmission or or other other ways that you were suggesting earlier, uh, something has to change. So there has to be some bigger, better story about why it's important to us. Because at the moment we turn our lights and heaters and air conditioners on, and they all work. Um, I, I think it's getting pretty tight, as people can see with 
you know, trying to extend the life of Araring. I read in the paper this morning that was $3 billion to extend that for a few years. Uh, putting that against Marinus, I think Marinus over 50 years for $3 billion is a pretty good investment. Um, so I think social licence is, I think, I don't know, just Australia in general, we've got to tell the story better and we're working on that uh, here with Marinus. I think Gippsland are doing it quite well. My my vibe there and when I go there, there's a great sort of vibe of this is all happening, this is all new, how can we make the most of this? Um, yes, you'll have your detractors, but there's generally a very good vibe. Uh, but we do have, as Australia, I think we've got to do some work on the, the social licence generally. Uh, yes, yes. And, and, and talk about cost, you know, in my own mind, I compare this with, say, Barumba at $14 billion or, or Snowy 2 at $14 billion, uh, And both of those, I think, actually exclude the transmission part. Uh, to me, uh, the numbers uh, for Marinus Link in absolute terms uh, are, are not that big. It's, I guess it's how the project stacks up from a net present value uh, perspective that's, that's really of interest. And just continuing on the uh, social licence side of things a little bit, uh, really, it partly there is a lot of opposition to building uh, uh, wind farms in Tasmania, I think, as, as an extremely broad statement. Uh, but the project would still have value even if there wasn't much new wind built in Tasmania? Yes, it would. Um, and uh, uh, the idea would be, like, it would be ideal to build wind in Tasmania, but if there's, built, if there's wind built uh, in other states, the, the link enables that movement around, the movement of energy around. So um, from a Marinus perspective, we're a little bit ambivalent. From a state Tasmanian state perspective, you would want the wind here, of course. So it's it's where the it's where it's, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, but there's also we've done uh, some modelling and uh, well, we haven't we've commissioned modelling on the economic benefit of Marinus, and there is it's more than two billion dollars of benefits of economic benefits and and many many jobs and in industry. So we have done that, um, and I think there's. It's one of the, well, I don't know if it still is, Praj can probably answer this. Uh, it was the, the highest uh, benefits in, in all of the ISP projects. Yes, it was. $8 billion at the time it was done. Uh, and it was the highest uh, in the way that model was constructed, uh, a model I spent a lot of time with. Since we don't talk about Tasmania all that often uh, on this podcast, and you talked about demand growth, um, uh, what are the prospects to, to in, in, as, uh, as a Tasmanian that you see for, for demand growth? I mean, I don't necessarily mean out there projects like building massive green hydrogen things. I understand they, they're, you know, uh, uh, they're sort of blue sky, so to speak, but, uh, you, you know, more run-of-the-mill stuff. Yes, I mean, there's a classic one here. We already have one of the major industrial uh, customers who want to move uh, one of their manufacturing um, processes from coal to electricity. And at this point, with the, the energy position as, as it is, they can't actually do that until there's more energy in the state or until Marinus is built. So that's, that's how, at, at, <laughs> how neutral on an energy perspective we are. Uh, there's other opportunities, especially with, because Marinus does have a high-speed data connection as well, so we have a lot of interest from uh, data centres and they are working also on other opportunities 
uh, for especially young people to get into uh, game development. There's lots of video game uh, programming development. I'm not very uh, good at describing what that is. So there's lots of other industries that are quite interested. You could run a few crypto farms down there, no doubt, as well. Uh, uh, I guess it's the build it and they will come kind of philosophy, uh, which I actually think uh, actually has some merit. And also, uh, just talking about uh, other states and the benefit from, uh, from having more dispatchable renewable capacity somewhere uh, and contracts, is it possible for, uh, say, a wind farm or a solar farm in New South Wales to actually write a firmed contract that uses Marinus Link and deliver the power in New South Wales? I mean, it seems like to me with all the um, different prices between the states and things like that, that would be a, a, a lot of basis uh, risk difference and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, look, um, I'll, I think you, you are right, David, that there is um, a lot of basis risk, but these can be managed um, via settlement residue auctions, um, you know, that, that, that AEMO um, offer. Um, but yes, you, you, would, you would need to manage the risk. Um, uh, uh, sorry, <sighs> I, do, I don't see um, the, the firming of a New South Wales customer via, via Tasmania uh, insurmountable. Uh, but yeah, you would you would need to ensure you can manage the basis risk um, via via uh, SRAs uh, and the likes. Good. Um, uh, um, uh, well, uh, I think I've actually covered. Uh, I, you mentioned Carolyn. I, I mean, every project talks about the employment benefits. Uh, so I, I generally tend not to focus too much on them because a lot of the time it's construction link and I can't imagine that there's uh, that many people required to actually keep the cable running uh, once it's built. Maybe you could just talk to me a little bit of, again about the timeline and next uh, the critical path uh, from here, what has to be done over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. We do have a number of things um, to do. We've got FID at December 24. Uh, now, some of these, from a normal project perspective, we're going a little bit out of sequence by reserving uh, capacity for cable and, and most likely reserving capacity converters if we, if we need to. Um, we've got a civils component that we need to do. Uh, we've got a lot of EPC contracts. I think we've got all of our environmental approvals to be, to be done. We've got a lot of regulatory work to be done. So there's a quite a sustained amount of work up till December 24. And then we start in, in the construction side of things to get ready to uh, lay the cable. Hmm. I'd just like to sort of jump in. Um, we published a couple of things which have been quite critical of Mariners Link in the project. So I just thought maybe you should just probably just sort of air some of those things and get you to sort of address them actually quite specifically. One of the um, claims is that there'll be no direct price benefit from this new connection. I'm just wondering if you can just specifically um, address that. Um... I think the, the modelling that, that uh, we have released uh, publicly um, a, a year or so ago does show that there are price benefits um, once, once Mariners Link is commissioned. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think um, this, this work was done a few years ago and look i don't exactly remember the numbers but um you know th there are um, customer savings for a typical tasmanian customer 
um, uh, based based on the modeling that we did um, last year. Uh, and also um, there are savings for a typical victor and customer also. Um, very happy, very happy to share that uh, modeling. Uh, but uh, just noting that AMO have, have released um, their IASR in July uh, and noting that they've, re they've, they've released their ESU uh, by the end of August. Um, we are looking to uh, update um, not, only, not only the um, RIT modeling but also the consumer benefits modeling. Uh, so we will be releasing something in the next two to three months, uh, which, which I'm hoping provides, provides more information. Okay, we'll look forward to seeing that. And, and then presumably that will be a, um, a, a significant driver towards the final investment decision e at the end of next year. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right, Giles. And, and look, um, at the end of the day, uh, we, we all know that um, you know, AMO's um, long-term annual NEM consumption forecasts um, have increased. Or, um, we also know that AMO, AMO will update the model uh, based on new renewable energy targets. Um, you know there are there are a few few of the other assumptions that that will be updated, uh, which which um, uh, I am personally interested to see what it does what it does to the um, NEM modeling um, and and as part of that, of course, we are looking to update uh, these these two pieces of analysis as well. Um, yeah, and and then I just guess that my, my sort of final question is just about some sort of, something that sort of Carolyn mentioned about what's the alternative, and I guess the alternative would we, we, you know. I kind of mentioned before might have been sort of you know more building within distributed networks either in Tasmania or on um, in Victoria battery storage. But um, um, what do you say to the people who sort of say that's the solution rather than more transmission? Yeah, look, I think uh, we need it all. Is my solution? <laughs> um, we we know um, we we um, are in a position where if we're serious uh, about decarbonisation. Then we need um, lots, lots and lots of storage. Uh, we also need lots and lots of um, uh, dispatchable capacity and energy. Um, we know that we need deep storage uh, for when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Uh, and we know that at this stage, Tasmania has that latent capacity, as we call it, in Tasmania. Uh, and of course, we also need to consider, um, you know, the the perfect foresight. Um, and the fact that um, at this stage modeling is based on perfect foresight, which we know uh, is is not the way it works in the in the real world. Look, Prajit, I think we might have to sort of wrap it up there. Um, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you, of course, to Carolyn also for 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 joining the podcast. Um, she's had to run off to get to to see the minister, which I guess is a reasonable excuse, but um, we do appreciate you giving us the time um, um, to speak to us today. Australia's most anticipated clean energy event, All Energy Australia, returns to the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, October 25 and 26. This event is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors. Featuring over 350 suppliers and attracting more than 10,000 industry professionals, you can't miss this free event. Register now for All Energy Australia 2023, October 25 and 26, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. 
And uh, that was uh, Carolyn and Prajit from um, Marinus Link. Um, yes, look, I, um, thanks to the editors for actually sort of getting through and and and, um, and uh, editing out a um, uh, making it listen more. Well, we did we did a few issues with dropouts, and um, you might find some sort of strange things happening there, particularly with Prajit, um, who was on the phone. Um, which, um, but anyway, look, we got there in the end. Um, yes, David, look, um, look, there is a lot of controversy over Marinus. Um, and some other transmission links. Um, Marinus basically is only going to go ahead at this stage with one of its 750 megawatt links. I mean, it does beg a question about at what stage do you think that these are no longer um, the best idea? And I, I guess it sort of seems to me that, um, look, I don't really know the answer to that, but it seems to me that we've kind of committed ourselves to go down a certain path and we're going there come hell or high water and come cable costs and other stuff. Um, and, and we don't seem to have as much flexibility. We keep on hearing about, um, you know, the likes of Jack Curtis. We had him on the podcast a few months ago talking about sort of the infill on um, some of the domestic networks. And, and we've got a lot of people sort of advocate battery storage. And it seems that we've kind of been, we are sort of committed to this plan. I guess we do have to be committed to a plan. We only have one plan. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 interesting to hear anyway. Yep, I agree with that. Uh, personally, I, I'm in the uh, of the view that the the plan is a reasonably sound plan, and uh, uh, but uh, and time will tell. And uh, I'm not one for turning myself. Uh, uh, we'll see how it works out. Well, Giles, I think we've taken uh, a lot of our listeners' time. Uh, I do believe that at this point, it's customary to thank our sponsors, uh, for whom we're very grateful. Is it not? Indeed, absolutely. Yes, thanks very much to Pylon and Evergen for their continuing sponsorship of this uh, podcast. Thanks to all the listeners out there. Um, do please give us your feedback and your comments. Um, once again, apologies for some of the uh, technical issues we had with the podcast this week. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.